They, they always sound great, but is it just me or are they especially good today? Good morning. Text this morning, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. Pastor Eric talked about how I get all the hard texts. But I've also noticed that every time I've been preaching, it corresponds to when the Vikings game starts. <laughs> and, uh, look forward to seeing them win again today. I was talking to my dad last week about the Vikings, so I think they're going to win the division. And he said he thought Green Bay or Detroit could, which just Detroit. Um, and uh, he said, I've never seen somebody become a fan of a team so quickly. I've, I've become a Vikings fan. And you might be wondering, when you lived in Illinois, were you a Bears fan? No, I wasn't. I didn't care about the Bears. But Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we can appreciate and delight in the glories of the heaven that you are preparing, that we can see your faithfulness throughout the Bible, Lord. 
that we can know that you desire for us to be with you because you are good. That you have always made a way, Lord, for your presence, for your people to be in your presence. And you are preparing a greater way still. And I pray that as we learn this and study this, Lord, that it can stir our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, he tells a story of an English minister who was asked by a colleague what he expected after death. The man replied, well, if it comes to that, I suppose I shall enter eternal bliss, but I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. <laughs> Our views of heaven are too lowly. In life, things can oftentimes lead to disappointment. A movie looks hilarious from previews. And then you see the movie and you feel like the funniest two or three minutes were in the previews. People rave about a restaurant. And you go, and it's just okay. We vote for a politician who we think will fix things. And they disappoint. A friend gets you to watch their favorite television show that they've been talking about and pestering you about to see. And you finally watch it. And you evaluate the friendship, you think, really? <laughs> I'm friends with the person who thinks this is the greatest show ever? And there are many other examples. Perhaps that's part of the reason why we have such a low view of heaven. Because of earth. We live in a fallen world where sin and hurt and things are never quite as they should be. Maybe because of something in our own life a disappointment, or a trial we've gone through, and we ask where God was, and maybe that tarnishes our view of heaven. Like heaven could be just one more thing that could disappoint us. Like heaven could be overrated. Like we could somehow find it underwhelming. With all of the confusion about heaven, there should be no confusion about this, though. Heaven is going to be awesome. It's not going to disappoint You'll never be there and feel like it didn't live up to the hype. Heaven will never be boring. Your worst day in heaven will be greater than your greatest day on earth. How do I know that? Because we have a good God who made heaven. Ultimately, our home is the new heaven and the new earth. And within those, God's holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the subject of our passage this morning. And the main point of this text, if I had to summarize it in a sentence is that heaven is going to be perfectly awesome. And in this passage, we see that through the appearance of heaven and through the perfection of heaven. First thing I want to talk about, the appearance of heaven. John is given a vision. Now, he's not actually there. He says he was carried in the spirit. Uh, so he's not actually in the New Jerusalem. In verse 11, John says that this city had the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So this vision is of a city coming down, and that's a spectacular sight to behold. The glory of God. Think of glory almost like weight or mass, the heaviness of God's all-inspiring glory. Keep in mind that in the previous chapter, Revelation 20, it talks about the presence of God, and it says, From his presence, earth and sky fled away. God is massively glorious. 
And John begins to describe the city more specifically, beginning in verse 12. The city is described as having a great high wall with 12 gates. There are 12 gates inscribed with the, name, with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse 14, John mentions 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. This is showing the completion of God's divine plan. There are three gates on each side of the city. This shows the openness through which the people of God are permitted to enter the city. Later in the chapter, it talks about how these gates never close. In the ancient world, cities had walls around them with gates. But these gates never close. And the reason why they never close is because by this point, the enemies of God have been vanquished. They have been defeated. And there's no danger to this city. As the vision continues, John sees the angel who is showing him the vision measuring the new Jerusalem. The measuring of the city is showing the exactness of God's plans and his completion. The city is said to be 12,000 stadia. A stadia is roughly 600 to 640 feet by today's measurements. So 12,000 stadia the city is over 1,500 miles long. So this is a massive city. If we were to go 1,500 miles straight to the east of where we are, we'd be in the Atlantic Ocean. If we were to go 1,500 miles south, we'd be in the Gulf of Mexico. Verse 16 says, its length and width and height are equal. So the city is shaped like a big cube. Then the angel measures the wall of the city, 144 cubits, which in modern measurements would be over 200 feet high. Now 200 feet might seem pretty small if the city is 1,500 miles high, but again, we must remember, remember that the purpose of the wall is not for protection. It's for boundaries, and also it's radiating back the radiance of the glory of God. It's marking off boundaries of the new Jerusalem, which again is within the new heaven and the new earth. Then John begins to describe the spectacular imagery of the wall. Beginning in verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Again, it is undoubtedly a spectacular sight to behold. Standing at this gate of this great high wall and looking from side to side as far as you can see. If you had a car, you could drive for hours and hours and hours and not come to the end of the wall, radiating back these precious stones. A truly unbelievable and amazing sight to behold. Again, we have a lot of stereotypes about heaven. But heaven is going to be perfectly awesome. We too often have sort of a cartoon view of heaven. Pastor Eric talked about this a little bit last week. But I think when we think heaven, we think clouds and white robes and playing harps. 
but we aren't going to be standing on clouds. It's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we're going to be living there eternally. We will be resurrected bodily, which is talked about in chapter 20. So we're not going to be ghosts or spirits. You'll be you. Now, in the movie Men in Black, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are federal agents who deal with people who have seen aliens. And when they finish questioning a person who's seen an alien, they pull out a device that looks like a pen, and it flashes off, and it erases the person's memory of the encounter with the alien. Heaven isn't like that. We aren't going to be robots in, in heaven. Our memories aren't erased. You will be you. We will still be ourselves. There are heavenly visions in the Bible of different biblical figures. They are themselves. The point of making you unique humans was not so that we could all be exactly the same. Heaven will be perfectly awesome. Now just think about Earth. There's a lot to it. Imagine if money were no object, you had all the time that you needed, you could travel anywhere on Earth you wanted to go to. Think about how much there is to explore. The great mountains and oceans. Really, just getting through Minnesota would take a long time. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's several lakes in this state. <laughs> so heaven isn't going to be standing around on clouds, being bored. It's a new heaven and a new earth. The harp. First of all, there are other instruments mentioned in biblical visions in Revelation besides just the harp. But yes, there will be music in heaven, because music is wonderful. And there will be food. We won't eat food because we need it to sustain us, but for the sake of enjoying a meal. Heaven is going to be perfectly awesome. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Other images the Bible uses of heaven. It's a feast. Who doesn't love a feast? I ate an entire pizza the other day, and it was just... Delightful. <laughs> a great feast. Great conversations and laughter. Music, not just the harp, and dancing. The Bible talks about it and calls it a wedding. Now, in America, we go pretty over the top for weddings. But there are other cultures that take it even further than we do. And in the first century in which John was writing Revelation, a wedding celebration could last up to a week. Wonderful times of joy and laughter and celebration. Heaven will be perfectly awesome. A wedding, a feast, good things. It's not come, come to the jury selection pool of the Lord. No, it's going to be a wonderful, joyous place. There will be wonderful company in heaven. You'll be able to see Jesus, the Lord who took the penalty of our sins. You'll be able to see him face to face. Heaven will be perfectly awesome. You might secretly fear the idea of heaven because part of you thinks, is it going to be like a church service forever? Your sermons are only like a half hour and those are hard to make it through. <laughs> I think part of the answer to that question depends on what is your definition of worship? For you, is worship just something that you do on Sunday mornings? Something that you just put up with? Or is it a way of life? Is going to church worship? Is raising your kids worshipful? Is growing with your spouse worship? Enjoying a good meal? Seeing a beautiful sunset? Do you turn to God in prayer? 
Do you enjoy music that honors God? Do you care about loving and serving people because that brings honor and glory to God? In short, do you live a lifestyle that revolves around worship? Or do you compartmentalize? I'll go to church for 90 minutes for the church box, but what I do the rest of the week, that's for me. Yes, there is worship in heaven. It's the presence of God. But in heaven, it'll be a better and truer form of worship. Have you ever been studying the Bible or praying, and you're praying, and you think, Get milk. And you get back to praying. I really need to check the weather, see what that's going to. And then you get back to praying. How is it almost October? And just one thing after another. You're battling to just stay focused. In heaven, you won't be dealing with the stresses of everyday life missed appointments, issues with finances, family stresses, health concerns. Heaven will be perfectly awesome because God is awesome. God is good, and heaven is the place that God is preparing. And there are things about heaven that we can't even imagine. Many people in America are social Christians. They're good, moral people, but they're lukewarm to God. They know he exists, but really, they just want to do their own thing. Is that you? Or do you love God? Do you have a desire to know him? Ultimately, we can have a taste of that now. But to just know that it doesn't compare with the reality that it will be to actually be in the presence of a holy God. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. I'm not saying this to be cynical or snarky, but if you dread the idea of worshiping God in heaven, I think you might need to develop a greater love for worshiping Him here on earth. But no, heaven will not be an eternal church service. It's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. There will be work to do in heaven. The Bible talks about ruling and reigning with Christ. Work isn't inherently bad. In the garden, even before sin, Adam is told to work and keep the garden. What exactly that will look like in heaven, we don't know. But it won't be miserable. It won't be a job that you hate. Oh, I have to do that shift in heaven again today. No, you will be serving God Almighty. It will be wonderful, joyful work. Heaven is not just a retirement community for all of eternity. There will be plant life, like a garden. But there will be streams that make Lake Superior look like Lake Inferior. <laughs> You'll be able to see tops of mountains and snow reflecting back the glory of the radiance of God without feeling cold. You'll be able to see vast fields and hear the mighty roar of a lion, but there will be nothing to fear. Pets? Well, the Bible doesn't answer that specifically, but it's possible. At least dogs. <laughs> no cats. <laughs> Isaiah 65, 25 points to the future time of restoration and the peace that will exist with animals. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is because the restoration is not just of humanity. God is restoring the physical world. It's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. He's restoring people. Again, it's a bodily, physical resurrection. And he's restoring the animal kingdom. The book of Romans says that the whole creation is groaning. Sin affects everything. But there will be no sin in Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem. It's a perfect place. Heaven should be a source of joy. Who here likes earth? You have things that you like, or maybe not even places that you've been to, but places you've read about or seen in documentaries that you think that would be a cool place to go to. I think of some of the artworks in Europe. Amazing beaches, different architectural achievements, spectacular rainforests. Those are all just here on earth. But God is making a new heaven and a new earth. And the point of the new earth is not for God to make a place that is worse than where we currently live. We'll have a greater perspective in heaven. We'll be able to continue to learn in heaven. Now, it's not that we'll become gods. That's what some cultish groups believe. No, we are people. We will always be people. Which, by the way, we won't become angels either. We are people. Heaven will be a place where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For the things that have been struggles, for the areas where we've suffered, in heaven, somehow, some way, they will be made right. Perhaps it's that heaven will be so glorious that we won't even care. Or perhaps we'll have a different perspective and, and see how all things really did work for our good. I think we get glimpses of that now. Some of us have experienced things that we wouldn't wish on anyone. But we know that without those, we wouldn't be who we are today. Heaven will be perfectly awesome. A second point, the perfection of heaven. John says he saw no temple in the city. This fact is immensely important. The reason why he saw no temple in the city was because the city's temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Not only that, but the city has no need for sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the glory of God illuminates the new Jerusalem. And keep in mind, we're not talking about a crawl space. It's a city that's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. That's 3.3 billion cubic miles. And God is providing light for the city. Again, the last part of this chapter, it talks about how there's no need for a physical temple. And the significance of that, we can get lost on if we're not being thoughtful. What's a temple? In its most basic form, a temple is a place where God meets his people. 
And just like how I oftentimes think we have a, a wrong or a lowly or a boring view of heaven, I think we can also be guilty of doing that with the temple. Again, the temple represents the presence of God with his people. All throughout the Bible, including to the present day, there is this theme of temple. Now, I have a list of, of some things. The garden, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, the church, and the new Jerusalem. And maybe the connection between those six people and places isn't obvious, but they all represent the presence of God. In the garden, Adam and Eve live in a perfect place. Because of sin, they were cast out, but God remained faithful. He chose a man, Abraham, to be the father of many nations and the patriarch of God's chosen people. From Abraham came Isaac, who fathered Jacob, who fathered 12 sons who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The Israelites were held in captivity in Egypt. After God had miraculously freed the Egyptians, and while the Israelites were wandering in the desert, while they were in the promised land, after God had miraculously freed them from Egypt, taking them to the land, God gave them instructions on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent structure for the Israelites to travel with while they were in the desert. And it represented God's presence with his people as they were moving. In Exodus chapter 40, it describes the completion of the tabernacle, beginning in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Once the Israelites entered the promised land, the plan was for them to build a permanent temple that would represent God's presence with his people. This happened during the reign of King Solomon. And we see it described, the completion of the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. And when the priest came out, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In both places where the presence of the Lord comes into the temple. People can't even stand because the presence is so overwhelmingly glorious. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking briefly about the glory of God. And I think I oftentimes have kind of a negative view about that. Like it's just, we can't, but it's because it is so overwhelming, so full of life that we can't take it. And in the Old Testament, again, the temple is hugely important. Building the temple the people sinning and corrupting the temple. God allowing the Israelites to be conquered and the destruction of the temple. God sovereignly working and allowing the Israelites to be freed from the Persians for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. But ultimately, God points forward to an even greater temple, an even greater example of his presence with his people, Jesus. In John 1, where it talks about Jesus, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that word dwelled, it literally means He tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent among us. The presence of God on earth 
In John chapter 2, Jesus says to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they mock Jesus, because what he said seems absurd. They talk about how long it took to build the temple, but he's referring to himself as the temple. Jesus is the temple. And Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers of God. In Acts chapter 2, this is dramatically described, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it lifted the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. By the way, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is originally pointed to in the Old Testament. The church is the body of Christ. The believers in the gospel are given the Holy Spirit, and we are the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. When I talk about the church, I mean the universal church, not just a church, but the church. All churches that are faithful to reclaiming the gospel. It's not that the church is important in and of itself. It's not that we are great. It's that God has given us his Holy Spirit. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we are made holy. We are equipped with spiritual gifts for the sake of building up God's church, God's temple, God's presence with his people. But all of this points forward still to an even greater temple, the New Jerusalem. It's a return to the original temple, the garden. The temple matters because the temple is the presence of God with his people. It's the relationship which was tarnished in the garden, the presence of God. It's what Jesus came to bring. And while we enjoy fellowship now, and while we shouldn't discount that, it is still merely a shadow of the true fellowship of being back with God in the new temple that he will build, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And that's the temple we finally come to in Revelation chapter 21. The temple, which has been a constant theme throughout the Bible. We see the return to the temple, the presence of the Lord. The text says that there is no need for sun or moon in this temple. Because God is the light, and Jesus is the lamp of the new temple. Notice the glorious and powerful moment it is when the presence of God fills the tabernacle, when it fills the temple, the rushing wind that comes at Pentecost, the enormity of the glory of God in the Bible, and to be in that presence. Perhaps you've stood by a waterfall, and you feel the water rushing down. It will be an all-inspiring, all spectacular, amazing experience to be in the presence of God. The presence of God will never disappoint. Pondering his glory and holiness and goodness is something we will never tire of in his presence. Because he is infinitely glorious and wonderful. God's presence is so holy and so full of life and vibrance that it's overwhelming. Heaven will be perfectly awesome. 
The final verse of this chapter, again, drives home the character, the perfection of heaven. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Nothing unclean will enter it. Sin cast us out of the garden, and the blood of the Lamb is bringing us back in. With a tabernacle, within those rooms, there was an inner sanctuary where only the high priest could go once a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. One person, one time a year, because it was such a holy and sacred place. And there was a purification ritual that the, the high priest had to go through before he could enter this holy place, the most holy place, as it was called, or the holy of holies. It was sacred. The dimensions of the most holy place, of the holy of holies, were equal in terms of its height, depth, and width. No coincidence in the New Jerusalem that the most holy place, the, the, the New Jerusalem, is also a perfect cube. And again, to enter it requires holiness. And that's a holiness we cannot earn. The appearance of heaven and the perfection of heaven. It is a spectacular place and a perfect place. And while we cannot earn admission into that holy place, Jesus could. He allows us to enter into the presence of the Lord. It matters because this is the promise of God and what he is preparing for his people. It matters because God is faithful. It matters because God is establishing his new temple. But on this side of heaven, before we get there, through God's spirit, we can still experience God. We can marvel at his righteousness. We can rejoice in his gospel. We can serve him and love his people. In anticipation for the new heaven and the new earth, as the church, we can work to build the temple, to be the temple today. Christ's body on earth for the glory of God today. But in humble and expectant anticipation of the day when God will bring us into his holy temple, where there is no need for a physical temple because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, may our love for you and our praise for your glory and our hope for heaven be stirred by this text, by your word, Lord. May we know that you are good. May we fight temptation to think that heaven will be boring or disappoint. To know that it is better than we could possibly imagine. It is more than we could possibly deserve. But because of your goodness, Lord, you will allow us to enter. Because of your gospel. And let us trust in that, that we are not perfect. We are not holy on our own. We do not deserve the temple on our own. But because of the work of Christ, because of his perfection, he allows us to enter. And let us place our trust in that and walk today and look to the future. In Jesus' name, amen.